Well, good morning. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm the family pastor here at Mount Horeb. It's a joy to be with you this morning to be able to open God's word together that he might teach us, transform us, and move us. In 2020, there's been some moves we made in the Miller family, and one of those moves has been to um, bring about a bit of an allowance opportunity for my two boys. So, you know, for a couple of reasons, because we, they can learn how to take care of finances, hopefully not spend it all on a pack of gum, that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But in order to get this allowance at the end of the month, there are some things they have to do kind of throughout the month. Little, little simple things like brush your teeth in the morning, brush your teeth at night, which is harder than you might think to do. Uh, to make that sure that it gets accomplished. Uh, when mom and dad fold laundry, you take your laundry and you put it into your drawer and then you shut your drawer. Uh, and so we're working on that. Uh, Wednesday, after the trash goes, you go down and grab the cans and you bring them back up to the house. Um, that's part of your responsibility. And then occasionally, not all the time, you go into your room. And if the room is a mess, then you go and you, you pick it up and you make sure that it's cleaned up. Now, if your house is anything like my house, my children somehow have managed to accomplish getting every trinket worldwide, the most unnecessary, worthless items, and they all, like a black hole, end up into their room, and everything. So there's all these things just strewn about everywhere, and then the clothing that's dirty, never makes back to the laundry, just sits on the floor, and there anybody can relate to what I'm talking about this morning with children? And then also in our household, you know, very much against Miller family policy, there are empty trash bags like, uh, you know, chips and um, Capri Suns kind of strewn about from time to time. And so what I've done recently is I've gone to my boys and said, listen, it's time to clean up the room. And so sure enough, they went away a couple days ago and they went to clean up the room. I gave them five minutes, six minutes, said start. So I walked into the room to come check things out. When I walked in, it was amazing. It was, it was spotless. I'm like, boys, they're just grinning. They're so proud of themselves, walking me, watch, watch me walk around the room. So I go from all the places, I look behind the bed. The bed behind there is clean, and the, the desk is all clean. I can't believe just the, the hard work they've done until I get to the closet. Because I'm not sure if this ever happened to you, but I went to grab the handle of the closet, and as I turned the handle, it turned harder than it normally does, indicating potentially there's something behind the door that is pushing against it. But sure enough, I opened the door and, and opened it up, and it, it instantly became clear why the room was so clean. Because everything from the room was now inside of the closet, shoved in as hard as it could go. So we had to have a little conversation about this. But the truth is, as much as my boys do this with the room, we kind of do this all the time. I found out very quickly, this was just a facade. It wasn't real. It looked clean on the outside, but behind the doors of this closet, it was nothing like I expected. We live in a world this morning, and I 100% believe this in my own life, we are so pressured to be perceived in a certain kind of way. There's expectations on us. To have everything under control. To have it all together. And certainly within a social media kind of world, uh, it's even more important to exude confidence and contentment and wholeness to the world around us. But if you're anything like me, I quickly realize that it's much easier to just fake it than to actually for it to be real. Just to pretend like everything's cool, shove it all in the closet, close the door, it's much easier than actually doing any kind of real work. But what happens is on the outside we might look fine and perfect, but on the inside, things are deeply broken. You know, in 2019, as we kind of all limped to the finish line, as I came to the end of that year, I looked back on what had taken place and there were certain things that really rattled me. And some of those things that really rattled me, and you probably read about it in the news, there were multiple folks who were in ministry around the country whose lives were cut short due to substance or suicide. And on the outside, everything looked nice and polished, but on the inside, it was dark and it was defeated. 
I don't know about you, but this oftentimes describes my life. I mean, I walk around so hard trying to make sure everything looks so nice and so perfect. And like my boys, I have this proverbial closet too often I shove everything into so I can have this aura of health around me. But if I'm honest, too often I'm not, I'm not winning within. And yet there's this pressure to have everything look perfect because after all, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I have a career, I'm a pastor for goodness sake. It's at least look like I have my things together. But if I'm honest, that's kind of not the way things go sometimes. So this morning, I wonder, can we all collectively just admit that life is harder than maybe we make it look sometimes? That a lot of us in the room this morning, we're carrying a heavy burden. A lot of us this morning, no matter what it looks like on the outside, on the inside, if we're honest, our internal life is a wreck. And so for the next few weeks... I believe we're going to have some conversations in here that are super important for us to be talking about, especially within the church. We're so guilty within the church too often to walk by and say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, perfect. Everything's great. We make this really nice face while on the inside, things are not okay. Things are not perfect. Things are not good. You know, we live in a country right now where we are more medicated than past generations and more unhappy than ever before. We live in a country right now where the number of those who struggle with anxiety or battle depression continues to rise, whether you're a youth or you're an adult. Many people walk around as walking wounded due to shame or guilt. And I would argue that the underlying issue here is not something that's external. It's actually something that is internal. These are not from external forces. I would argue these are some from deep within us where all of this originates. And this is not a new idea. In fact, thousands of years ago, as the writers put together the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 was written, and the writer wrote this, guard your heart above all else, for it's the wellspring of life. Guard your heart above all else, for it's the wellspring of life. Though it was written thousands of years ago, it's gone largely unheard for a lot of us in this room. Be careful what you allow in. You see, you have to understand the way the Hebrew people thought of the heart. They didn't think of some organ that pumped blood through all your extremities to keep you alive. They didn't think about something that you would draw to express your your love and and, uh, care and concern for someone else. They thought the heart was the very center of every human being. The heart was the very center of each person where all of our beliefs, our thoughts, and our actions originated. It all came from right here. So they said, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Our beliefs Our thoughts and our actions all begin here. It's the wellspring of our life. So guard your heart, the writer says. Be careful what you allow in. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful what emotions go unchecked, what pain is left unhealed. Be careful what you consume. Because you will never, ever win internally. You'll never win internally until you realize that our hearts are the core of who we are. And we will never win externally in our families, in our workplace, in our relationships, in our classroom, in our marriages, in our community. We will never win here until first we have victory internally, until we win within. The writers knew this. So one of the reasons I would argue this morning that we don't win within, we don't experience victory is because too often we don't believe what's actually true. We don't believe what's true. There are all kinds of things that have probably been said to you throughout your life. 
Some of those things are painful. Some of those things are hard. There's all kinds of things that we've been handed to us throughout our life, and some of those things are difficult. Some of those things are heavy. There's all kinds of things that we tell ourselves each and every day. You might look in the mirror, and there's a certain tape that runs through your head each and every day. There's mistakes that we make that we end up feeling like define us, and the truth is, too often, we begin to believe these things rather than what is true for us, what is true in our lives. So one of the greatest things we can do within our life is learn how to recognize the difference between what is true and what is false. So I want to invite two friends of mine out on stage right now to help us kind of see what this looks like practically. Would you join me in welcoming to the stage Kel Donald and Molly Coates? Now, I'll be honest, Kel looks so excited to be on stage right now, but he is not. Internally, this is a struggle. So, Kel, how are you? Um, I'm great. You made it through service one. I did. This is it. Okay, so we're going to play a little game called Two Truths and a Lie. Okay, so you as a congregation, you're going to help me out here. You're going to help them out here. They're going to share three things of them. Each of them will share three things from their life. Your job is to figure out which one of the three things is, in fact, not true. Okay, so Kel, you're going to start for us. So Kel, share with us three things about your life. Okay, I'm from Chicago. I played high school basketball, and I like Taylor Swift. Okay. So now your job is to figure out which one is not true. So first, who would say Kel is not from Chicago? Raise your hand. Okay. Who would say Kel did not play high school basketball? Dang, bro. Thank you for that. You're a specimen, dude. I would never get... All right, last one. Who would say that Kel does not like Taylor Swift? He is not a Swifty. Kel, which one's, which one's the, uh, the actual one that's false? I did not play high school basketball. <laughs> I don't know what that means, dude, but they got you. All right, Molly's going to share three things with us now from her life. Your job, which one is the one that's false? All right, so I'm a vegetarian. I had to get braces twice, and I hate jelly beans. Okay, simple enough. Here we go. Who would say that Molly, uh, she is not a vegetarian? Okay. Number two, who would say that Molly did not have braces twice? Uh-oh. Who would say Molly's favorite candy is jelly beans? All right, Molly, which one is not true? All right, you ready? I am not a vegetarian. Got him! <laughs> Y'all thought you were so smart and nailed it. Hey, would you join me in thanking them real quick for their help this morning? Thank you, Kel. Thank you, Molly. So that's easy. Looking a little bit to find, try to figure out, okay, in, the, in my life, which thing is true here? But I'll tell you what's much harder, being able to distinguish the things that we believe to be true and the things that we believe to be false when it comes to the way that we live. And the reason this is so important is because what we believe impacts how we live and how we live impacts who we become. What you believe will impact how you live your life. How you live your life will impact who you become. And the problem is this, many of us this morning, we are making every decision within our life Every conviction that we have, every conversation we have with others, every conversation we have with ourselves, we are doing it simply based on things that are not true. You can see how that could skew a whole life, operating off of things that are false. Many of the things that we believe this morning that are destructive have to do with the value that we have. They have to do with the kind of commitments that we have within our marriage or as a parent. 
They have to do with the belief we have about the future, what we understand to be true about God, what we believe to be right or to be wrong. And these things, oftentimes, they're told to us or given to us from society around us, or potentially from a parent or a classmate or a teacher or a pastor long ago who said this one thing, and ever since then, you've carried it around with you. Even though it's not true, it holds sway over you. So I would argue that it's of utmost importance that we know the difference between what is true and what is false, so we can live out of that. In the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people who have gathered around, as he often does in the Gospels. This group of Jews were standing before Jesus, and they're having this conversation. He says something really interesting when it comes to all that we've just discussed. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 33 says this. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the what? Truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? So Jesus begins this conversation with those who are listening. He says two very important words. Number one, truth. Number two, free. Jesus is expressing to those who are listening a very important thing, not just for them then, but also for us today. You can experience freedom. You can experience freedom. And so I don't know how many here this morning, even as I say that, you might think in your head, I want that so bad. There's this thing that's in my life, and I've not felt freedom in a very long time. No one really knows about it. I kind of keep it to myself. I shove it in the closet, close the door. But the truth is I don't experience freedom in my life day to day. Jesus says to those who are standing there, you can experience freedom. This is true. If you stay true to my word, you are my true disciples. And if you stay true to my word, then you will know the truth. And the truth will do what? It will set you free. You can experience freedom. And Jesus says the truth is the key to this freedom. Now, the word true in our culture today is an interesting word. It's a bit subjective. In fact, to say that something is true is actually very offensive to some folks because to suggest that something is true, what you're saying actually is that something else is potentially false. But in Jesus' context, I wanted to know what were those who were listening to him talking, what did they think of automatically when he says, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Every Jewish person who was standing before Jesus as he was speaking, his mind, their mind would have gone to something right away. They would have thought instantly to the Hebrew scriptures. I'll show you why. Here are just four verses of many that would back up this, this comment. Number one, Psalm 119, verses one, uh, verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. 2 Samuel 7, 28. You are God, and your words are true. Psalm 33, verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. When Jesus says, you will know the truth, every Jewish person standing there would have been like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Talking about Old Testament scriptures, the prophets. This was their litmus test to help them understand as they lived their life what was true and what was false. They always went here. This helped them discern how to live their life in really difficult situations. This was their authority. This was truth. And so when Jesus says this to them, instantly they think back to these writings 
the things they knew to be true. I recently had a chance to go to my sister's church up in uh, North Carolina to go to worship. Now, I don't often on Sunday mornings get a chance to go to some other location and be able to sit and just enjoy worship. Not that I don't enjoy this. Let's move on. So I got to go to this other church to spend some time, and I walked into this church, and the first thing I noticed, it was shocking to me, to be honest with you. As I walked into the, to the church and I sat down, I looked around, everybody was carrying a Bible. Everybody. And a lot of them had these nice little zip-up cases for them, little pens and highlighters stuck in there. And they're walking around with their Bibles, getting ready for church, ready to open up the Word of God. And I I looked around, and I thought to myself, wow, wow. The, The authority, the precious value placed on this one thing. Now, I'm gonna be very clear with you for just a second. Just because you carry a Bible around with you does not mean that you are a solid Christ follower. I mean, just like you standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. Does that make sense? They're different things. You can't just carry it around. But there were many people who I encountered up at that little church. That Bible to them is important, authoritative. It's truth for them. Read in the right context and in the right kind of way, not as a weapon, but instead as a guide, it's authority for them within their life. And so when Jesus says, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free, every Jewish person thinks right back to the writings of Scripture, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writings, this is where their mind goes. But Jesus is trying to take them a step further, because it's not just about the things that are written on this parchment, this word, but it's actually about something even more important. You will know the truth, and essentially he's pointing to himself standing right here in front of you. Because look how those, those Jews before Jesus, they respond. He says to them, you will know freedom. And they say this instantly. We don't need to know freedom. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone as long as you forget about the 400 years you spent in Egypt. We've never been enslaved to anybody. We don't need freedom. They 100% completely misunderstand the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Because to them, freedom only has to do with the external. Were they enslaved at this point in time? No. We don't need to hear this, Jesus. We are free. And how often we do the same thing. Even reading this verse, potentially. Freedom. You might think, I'm already free. I'm an American. Growing up here my whole life. I'm free. I got news for you. That's wonderful, but that has nothing to do with the kind of freedom Jesus is talking about. I'm a grown man, a grown, I own my own house, I pay a car payment. Well, good for you. But it has nothing to do with the kind of freedom that Jesus is talking about here. I've been a part of this church for 35 years. My name's on the rolls for a long, long time. Good for you, but it has nothing to do with the kind of freedom that Jesus is talking about. Because there are some in the room this morning, when you read this passage, you think to yourself already, being free means I am free to do whatever I want. That's not real freedom. After being in ministry for many years, I've, I've seen husbands who have decided to walk out on their marriage into an adulterous affair, and to them it feels like freedom. I can do whatever I want to do. It's not freedom. That's bondage. There are some maybe in this room who feel like freedom is being able to be addicted to pornography and nobody knows. It's not freedom. It's bondage. Freedom may look like being able to drink what I want, smoke what I want, do what I want. That is not freedom. That's addiction. That's bondage. 
To have multiple credit cards, be able to buy whatever you want to buy, feels like freedom. I got news for you. That is not freedom. That is bondage. You see, freedom is not having the ability to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Not an external freedom. He's talking about an internal freedom. Something deeper. You see, what Jesus is trying to express to them, and he's going to expound upon it in just a few verses, he's trying to tell them sin enslaves us. Sin, I'm not talking about a kind of bondage that's external. I'm talking about a bondage that takes place within your life. It's internal and it's sin. Sin is all of the ways that we live contradictory to the way of God. So unforgiveness, we stay committed to that. It seeps into our heart. It enslaves us. Rebellion, it's hardening our hearts and it enslaves us. Selfishness, turning our hearts inward and it's enslaving to us. Deceit, we trick ourselves We trick our hearts and it enslaves us. Here's what Ravi Zacharias once said. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Every single time. So Jesus is offering true freedom. And he says, here's how you experience this freedom. You believe what is true. You believe what is true. What has been written, what's exemplified before you right now in front of your eyes. In John chapter 8, verse 34, he goes on to say this. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Jesus grabs a hold of this concept of being descendants of Abraham. He's like, listen, I got a different family that I'm talking about. And it's not this one. I'm talking about this family of God of which I am the son of. And if the son sets you free, guess what? You are really free. You see, a lot of us in the room this morning... There are these things that have been said to us, things that we carry around of us a long, long time. We've believed them for a long, long time, and sometimes we have to be reminded over and over and over again about what's true. My eight-year-old son, I would love to say that I'm like this awesome father at instilling the word of God into my children every single day. I'm not very routine, and so I kind of stink at it sometimes, but there's like two things I'm really good at. And one of them is my wife and I try as hard as we can each and every day that when we send our son off to school with a lunchbox, we put a card inside the lunchbox, we write on it. Usually some kind of scripture I've looked up that morning, I'll put it on the card and stick it in his lunchbox or I'll remind him, you're brave, you're honest, you're loyal, you love people, you love God, stick it in his lunchbox. Uh, Some kind of quote that I like or some kind of just reminder that his mom and dad love him very much and stick it in his lunchbox. And my son has told me before that when he gets there, all his friends call him love notes. I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy. He's like, I know. But I put him in his lunchbox, and here's why. I know that in school, he will hear everything contrary to everything that I'm writing. For the hours leading up to lunch, more than likely, he'll be told something the exact opposite over and over and over again. He'll be tempted in his heart to want to let this seep in and begin to believe these things. So I want to remind him every single time, that's not what's true about you. Let me tell you what's true about you. God's word says this about you. God feels this way about you. Your mom and your dad, we feel this way about you. Here's who you actually are, no matter what anybody wants to say about you. It's a simple little way, but I want him to never forget who he, I hope one day my son's 18 years years old in therapy because of the love notes his dad sent him every day to school. I hope so. I want it to be so ingrained in his mind. Here's who you are. Here's what you really mean. 
No matter what is said to you, don't buy the falsehood, buy the truth. Sometimes our hearts have to be reminded of this. So maybe this morning, maybe you feel like you are bad because of the bad decisions you've made. I am bad because of the things that I've done. Romans 8, chapter 1 instead says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. Maybe you feel like your life is never going to amount to anything, but Philippians 1, 6 says, the good work God has begun, he will complete in you until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with you yet. Maybe this morning you feel overtaken by anxiety because of the chaos around you, but 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your anxiety on Christ because he cares for you. Maybe you feel defeated because your day hasn't gone the way that you wanted it to, but Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4 says, God will fight our battles and give us his victory. You may feel alone as you trudge through the trials of life. It's so difficult and hard, but Psalm 34, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You see what I did? All the lies that we buy each and every day, every single one has a contradictory truth that comes directly from God's word. It's what's true about us. Jesus says the truth will set you free. He expounds on it in John chapter 14, verse six, when Jesus himself says this, Jesus answered them, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. He's taking this a step further from just Old Testament scripture, just the prophets. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way. Follow my lead, Jesus says. I am the truth. I'm the embodiment of all that's been written. I've lived it out before you so you can see it here in the first person. And I am the life. I want you to understand something this morning. God's plan for you, every single one of you, is that you would live life and life to the fullest. That's what he's intended for you. But when we don't win within, we never get to experience that fullness that God is talking about. And it has nothing to do with a full bank account. It has nothing to do with being perfect. It has nothing to do with having the house on the lake. It has everything to do with feeling an experience of freedom that goes beyond the external and it's something internal. Because we believe what's true. A few verses before what Jesus says in chapter 8, in John chapter 1, this is written about him. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word. What do you notice about that word, word? It's capitalized. Here's why. The writer is referring to someone. The word, capital W, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The writer is saying this, all the things that have been written in the Old Testament, everything that you know up until this point in time, that word has now become flesh. Jesus walked this earth to show us how to live, to show, it what, show us what it looks like to win within to show us truth lived out before our very eyes. The word became flesh. And I believe the fullest expression of this truth is seen through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his book, Robert Coleman writes, entitled Written in Blood, he tells a story about a little boy and a sister 
who needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from just a few years earlier. Her only chance of recovery was actually through a blood transfusion with someone who had previously conquered that disease. Since the two children had a rare blood type, the boy was an ideal donor. So the doctor went and spoke to him and said, would you give your blood to Mary? Johnny hesitated. His lower lips started to tremble, and then he smiled, and he said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were headed into the hospital room. Mary was pale and thin, and Johnny was robust and healthy. Neither one spoke to each other, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky and broken, broke the silence, and he said to the doctor, so when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny has hesitated about giving his blood, why his lip had trembled in donating his blood, because he thought giving his blood was going to cost him his life so that he could rescue his sister. And in that brief moment, he made the greatest decision. Even if this cost me my life, I'll do it. Here's the truest thing about you this morning that will counteract every other lie that we're tempted to believe. The truest thing about you is this. You were worth dying for. You were worth Jesus giving up his life for. He saw something within you, even though we don't see it ourselves. And certainly other people don't see it in us too often. But Jesus saw something and you were worth dying for. It's the fullest expression of what this truth looks like. By Jesus going to the cross and giving up his very life. How much of our dysfunction in our life, how much of the reasons that we don't win within have to do with us trying to earn love and approval and grace and mercy and forgiveness and all along it's already ours. It's already yours. You don't have to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. This is a gift that is given to each and every one of us because you were worth dying for. I'm confident of this. Our help is in the natural. As we wrestle for the next three weeks through some really heavy topics, there is help that's available to us in the natural. Sometimes that help, that help may look like a prescription. Sometimes that help may look like someone who's a trained professional to sit down with and talk and, and go through some counseling to get some help navigating this life. Our, our help is found in the natural, but our hope, our hope is found in the supernatural. Our hope is found in the person of Jesus who lived out this perfect truth, who saw us as worthy enough to go to the cross to give his very life, break his body and shed his blood so that each and every one of us this morning could experience a full life, that we might win within so that we could win externally in our marriages, in our careers, in our families, in our church, within ourselves, you name it. It starts here. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging God we can't do this life alone. 
we, we don't have the kind of freedom that you're talking about, Jesus. It's not something that we can come up with ourselves. We need you to give it to us. So Father, this morning, we wanna to come to you and say that we are grateful for the chance that you've given us at new life, a fresh start. I pray, God, this morning, that there'll be some good work that happens within the lives of those who are in this room because of the work that you're doing even now. Remind us, God, whisper to us even now, remind us that we are loved by you. It's the truest thing about us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.